What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 24. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So we know from the gospel passage we just heard that this verse I just read is spoken by the man with the unclean spirit that Jesus then swiftly casts out of him. But I think it's fruitful to suspend our fuller like knowledge of the narrative that we, we know, like in the context of the story, it was an unclean spirit, but to momentarily suspend that knowledge and experience this event as with our imagination, uh, as it would have been for those who were there in the synagogue. So um, picture with me the scene. Uh, it's the day set apart for worship, Sabbath, in, in a mid-sized town, and it's business as usual at the meeting house, right? That's what synagogue means, just meeting house. It's not too difficult to imagine, right? It would have been a setting not so different from the very one we find ourselves in right now. There was one large contextual difference, and that's that, of course, the Holy Spirit hadn't yet been poured out on God's people. So the preaching that took place in the synagogue, if you can call it preaching, um, was of a very different quality because it wasn't what we're used to preaching being. It was instead really uh, an exercise in being as uh, tweezer precise with the rules of the Old Testament about exactly what it means you can and can't do. So we heard about, you know, the, the crowd said, wow, this guy doesn't teach like the scribes. And it kind of raises the question, well, what did scribal teaching sound like? Um, we actually have, um, the Jewish people have preserved, you know, layers and layers of texts of commentary, commenting on the Old Testament. And there's kind of all these archeological layers to that in terms of the centuries they come from. One of the very oldest stratum um, is uh, f from the second century, like, so the mid-100s, but it's of the same school that we think is connected to the scribes. So I want to read to you just a brief example of what the kind of teaching that they would have been used to hearing in the synagogue uh, in Jesus' day. So this is um, from a document called the Sifrei, and this is the Sifrei on Deuteronomy. So this is actually a commentary on the passage we just heard when Moses prophesied that um, a prophet like him would come, which is, of course, Jesus. Um, so this is sort of scribal commentary on the, Moses, the Deuteronomy 18 passage. A prophet from your midst, from your brothers, such as I, the Lord your God, will establish for you. From your midst, meaning not from outside the house, the land of Israel. From your brothers, meaning not from others, that is Gentiles. Will establish for you, meaning not for idolaters. How then am I able to understand Jeremiah, who says... A prophet for the nations have I made you. Well, for those Jews who deport themselves as the nations do. Deuteronomy goes on, it shall be well the man who will not heed, and, and it shall be the man who will not heed my words. Here there are three whose death is at the hands of heaven. One who suppresses his prophecy, like Jonah the son of Amittai. One who dismisses the words of a prophet, as did the colleague of Micah and a prophet who transgresses his own prophecy, as did Iddo. And there are three whose death is at the hands of Bet-Din, one who prophesies what he did not hear from God, like Zedekiah ben Hannah, and what was not spoken to him, like Hananiah ben Azur, who heard things from the mouth of Jeremiah, who prophesied in the upper marketplace, and went and prophesied in the lower marketplace, and one who prophesies in the name of idolatry, that is, this is what the idol says, 
even if what he said was consistent with the halakha, to rule unclean what was unclean and clean what was clean, it being written, the prophet who shall presume, etc. So it's not bad, right? It's kind of an interesting exposition of the text, but I find it quite dry. And I think the people did as well, right? I mean, they were, I mean, contrast this. We know what Jesus' preaching was like. We have it in the Gospels. Think of the parables. Think about hearing the parable of the prodigal son, right? Compared to what we just heard from the Sifrei. Like, you'd be like, whoa! <laughs> it would have been so gripping and vibrant and vigorous. And that's how the crowd experienced it. It knocked their socks off. This teach, his teaching was alive. Um, and of course it was, because he's commenting... When, he com- when Jesus comments and preaches on the Old Testament, he's commenting on it, what he wrote, right? It says in, over and over again in the Old Testament, and the word of God came to Zechariah, and the word of God came to Isaiah. Right? It's God himself, the, the word of God whispering in the ear of the prophet who wrote, that ended up becoming the scriptures. So when Jesus is teaching on the Old Testament, he's offering the author's analysis of the text, which is oh, what better analysis could there be? So Jesus is teaching, and in the middle of this um, setting, this guy jumps up from his seat and yells, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Now again, we, we come to learn that when he says us, he's mean, you know, it's the demon speaking. But to the, community, to the community, it would have just looked like this man was speaking. It was him, right? It was his voice. I wonder, given how we see every time Jesus preaches and teaches, there's some who receive the message, the seed that falls on the good soil, and there's some who reject the message. If there weren't people who were impressed at the vigor of the presentation, but the content was making them uneasy. Certainly, I think that's what happened. This is what the fathers teach about the demoniac, that the Lord's teaching was shining light on him, and the darkness doesn't like the light. And so he counterattacked with interruption to cut off the sermon, to try and cut off the sermon. So I wonder if when he's, people heard that and saw, saw this guy, maybe there are a few people who thought, yeah, who is this guy, this carpenter from Nazareth, right? He's not a trained rabbi. Maybe they felt some of that sentiment of the man who interrupted. What have you, Jesus, to do with us? Now, thankfully, um, we are not afflicted by unclean spirits the way this man was in the synagogue. But I think the impulse is common to us, at least it is in my experience, that when the strong light of Jesus' own teaching sort of shines on us, like in the spotlight, as it were, one of the instincts we have, just like this man, is to try and distance. What have you to do with us? Like trying to make this gap between speaker and listener. Now, we do it more politely, you know, but anytime you hear someone say, well, the Bible, that was written long ago, you know, what have you to do with us? we, We have all these little kind of polite techniques to try and stiff arm the, the message of the scriptures. When the tail is pinned on the donkey, we don't like it. And then the man with the demon says, have you come to destroy us? And I think at this point, the congregation would have realized he wasn't just doing a rhetorical us. It's like, destroy? What? Who's talking about destroy? Where's this coming from, right? It's clear that he's revealing that he has an unclean spirit in this moment. Um, And the answer to that question is actually mixed. The answer to the question is yes and no. So to be clear, to the demon, the answer is yes, right? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. It says that in John's gospel. It's exactly why Jesus came, to reclaim the earth and all mankind for God. 
it's no accident that in his providence, this is the first event in Jesus' public ministry, right? As it's recorded in the Gospel of Mark. It sets the tone that his, his is a work of casting out the works of the enemy, literal exorcisms, healings, clear teaching in the face of darkness, and then ultimately his ministry culminating in destroying the last enemy, death. Jesus did come to destroy demons, but he came to save humans, not destroy us. And I think this is one of the tricks that, that I experienced the enemy using, is to actually confuse and bundle the whole question together. That it's certainly the case that God wants to cleanse us, just like he wanted to cleanse the man, of what is unclean in us. For us, it, it, in most cases, it's not an unclean spirit, but it may be a habitual sin, which is unclean. And one of the things the enemy whispers is that we're going to be destroyed in that process. That we are so annexed to us, and it's part of our identity. This is who I am. This is just what, what I do. The enemy lies to us and says it's all bundled together. But Jesus wants to cleanse us from the sin because it's actually the sin that is making us less ourselves, not more. So there's actually a, a marvelous um, C.S. Lewis writing that I think ex- sort of takes uh, this passage of this sort of interaction, have you come to destroy us, and unpacks it in beautiful three dimensions. Um, how many have you have, have read The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis? Have you read The Great Divorce? Yeah. Um, so you, you might be familiar with this passage, but if you are, I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing it again. I actually want to read you a long excerpt. So think of this like story time in the middle of the sermon. Feel free to kind of settle in. So as you remember from the book, um, Lewis is sort of imagining this trip to sort of the outskirts of heaven, and he's encountering the souls of humans there who he calls ghosts. And it's sort of this interaction of kind of the moral sphere as it plays out in the next life. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains, which is where heaven is in the picture. Hey, Rick and Jean. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, and here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? 
Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so darn embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I, I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Oh, honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I, I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I, I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Well, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't, I say. Let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me in pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the darn thing without asking me before I knew it? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It, it's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right, it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Darn and blast you, go on, can't you? Get it over, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony, such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. Ah, oh, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man, then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched, and if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man. An immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. 
At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into the other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps and quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. While I still watched, I noticed that the whole plain and forest were shaking with a sound, which in our world would be too large to hear, but there I could take it with joy. I knew it was not the solid people who were singing. It was the voice of that earth, those woods and those waters, a strange, archaic, inorganic noise that came from all directions at once. The nature or arch-nature of that land rejoiced to have once more been ridden and therefore consummated in the person of the horse. Nature sang. The master says to our master, Come up, share my rest and splendor till all natures that were your enemies become servants to dance before you, and backs for you to ride, and firmness for your feet to rest on. Overcome us, so that overcome we may be ourselves. We desire the beginning of your reign as we desire dawn and dew, wetness at the birth of light. Do you understand all this, my son? said the teacher. I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse? Yes, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, everything that is in us, can go on to the mountains? Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it now is. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire 
which will arise when lust has been killed. That, I think, is a three-dimensional imaginative unpacking of that distinction of what the Lord has come to destroy, but also what he's come to save. It says in the gospel that the evil spirit convulsed the man and cried out. Right? There was a bit of pain in the being freed from the sin, but the man was made well. Have you come to destroy us? No, and yes. And then finally, the man um, is given uh, uh, a demonically sourced knowledge of who Jesus really was. Like the man only saw Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter. But the demon recognized the one through whom the worlds were made. And so he then blurts out, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Which is, of course, an accurate confession. That is who Jesus is. But it wasn't welcome and it wasn't earnest. It wasn't welcome because this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and in God's providence he wasn't going to have a, a demon be the herald of the coming of the Son of God. And it wasn't earnest because the statement of the fact wasn't corroborated with um, a life that had responded to that fact. The demon had no love for Jesus, no obedience. So to call him the Holy One is sort of this moot, uh, almost meaningless statement on the lips of a demon. It's an instance of what James tells us, that demons are perfectly capable of stating theological facts. Right? Christianity is not about being able to state the right facts. It's about the life of responding to those facts with repentance and obedience and trust. So in that synagogue on that um, Sabbath morning, the whole episode of the interruption is over as quickly as it starts with a single word, no sort of special powers or special incantation is needed. Jesus just casts out the demon, and the demon is silenced and cast out um, instantly. And the people who are already stunned at the vibrancy of the teaching now have their jaws on the floor, right? What is this? A new teaching with authority. Even he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. No wonder his fame spread. In fact, continues to spread, right? It's funny, sometimes the lesser word helps us understand the bigger concept. We talk often about God's glory. To be famous is a less impressive word than to be glorious. But Jesus is still famous, right? The stuff he's done, we're still talking about. Like the same way we talk about the exploits of a great national leader or military, like we're still talking about these amazing things that Jesus did. His fame continues to spread. I just want to offer a prayer for us in the face of this gospel reading. Lord Jesus, um, save us from distancing ourselves from you when you shine light of truth on us. Save us from making that same mistake, from putting you at arm's length. Lord Jesus, we do invite and say yes to your cleansing us from what is evil, even if it hurts a little. We know that we will not be destroyed. We will actually be made whole. Lord, we invite your cleansing power. And Lord, I pray also that you would help us uh, to confess, as we say in the morning prayer, not only with our lips, but with our lives. That our Christianity would not merely be the statement of facts, but would be a life molded around the truth of those facts. And we pray all this for your glory and in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.